This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a presidential race in Peru stirs controversy. We'll have the views of two experts as we devote the program to politics in Peru. But first, Chorsey Martin has more on that controversial presidential election and our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The presidential race in Peru is coming down to the wire, with frontrunner Kenko Fujimori ahead in all of the polls, ahead by as much as five points. Fujimori is a former senator and the daughter of former dictator Alberto Fujimori. Her opponent, economist Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, sharpened his rhetoric this week during his campaign appearances. On the 5th of June, you'll decide, do you want me or do you want a leader for the type of people who are in prison? Fujimori's father remains in prison. He has 17 years left on his sentences for bribery, corruption, and human rights abuses. Some in Peru worry that Keiko Fujimori will bring back many of the same abusive policies her father employed. But many Peruvians also credit Fujimori with economic policies that improve conditions for many people. Peruvians will make their decision this weekend. We'll have more about the elections in Peru after this newscast. More political upheaval in Brazil as interim president Michel Temer lost another member of his new cabinet. Someone leaked a recording of Minister Fabiano Silveira plotting with a prominent senator on ways to avoid a corruption investigation. Beyond the trouble of a recording revealing a conspiracy and secret plots, Silveira's cabinet post was as Minister of Transparency, a post supposedly devoted to government openness. The wide-ranging corruption scandal in Brazil revolves around the state oil firm Petrobras. Prosecutors have accused a long list of prominent politicians and business leaders connected to the probe. Prosecutors believe various corruption schemes have drained at least $2 billion from the state oil firm. Prosecutors also moved this week against executives of one of Brazil's biggest banks, Banco Bradesco. They accuse those top executives of being part of a wider conspiracy to avoid paying as much as $5 billion in taxes to the government. All this follows street protests, including a protest at the home of President Temer. Protests calling for Temer and his new government to step down and return Dilma Rousseff to power. <music> Unrest in Venezuela this week, with even opposition groups calling for calm. Police broke up protests near the presidential palace in Caracas. Hundreds of people demonstrated there demanding cheaper food prices. Some experts say Venezuela is suffering from inflation as high as 500 percent. Some experts say it may be as high as 700 percent. Experts say official government releases greatly underestimate the economic crisis. The spiraling prices have meant food shortages. Opposition groups are demanding the recall of President Nicolas Maduro. They have delivered a petition with 1.8 million signatures asking for a recall election. However, electoral authorities decided to cancel a session with opposition leaders this week, causing further delays. The Rubik's Cube may seem like a fad from the 1980s, but a three-year-old in Brazil proved this week playing those puzzling cubes can still be popular. Three-year-old Hong Yan Chan, who comes from an Asian-Brazilian family, solved the Rubik's Cube puzzle during a competition in just 47 seconds. 
Of course, video of her astounding feat went viral on the internet. The three-year-old solved the puzzle cube during a competition in Curitiba, Brazil. Perhaps the solution to the cube's mysteries runs in her family. Her seven-year-old brother took just nine seconds to solve the cube during a competition in Brazil last year. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Germany. Our listening group in Germany was our third largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the United States and Mexico. So we say Dankeschön to all of our listeners in Germany and elsewhere around the globe. And now we turn our attention back to Peru. As we heard earlier, Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of dictator Alberto Fujimori, leads in the polls before this weekend's election. Her opponent is economist Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, sometimes just called Pepe Ka for his initials in Spanish. Last week at the Latin American Studies Association Conference in New York City, we met up with Cynthia McClintock of George Washington University. Longtime listeners know we've discussed Peruvian politics with her before. She's the author of The United States and Peru, Cooperation at a Cost. Here are excerpts from our on-location interview. And at first, uh, the polls had given Pepeca the narrow advantage, uh, but in recent weeks, uh, Keiko Fujimori has pulled ahead. And this, to many of us, including myself, was quite surprising for, for many reasons. Uh, most, uh, most surprisingly, perhaps, uh, two weeks ago, uh, there were indications that the Secretary General of her party was under investigation by the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, uh, but that uh, apparently has not uh, hurt her. Uh, obviously, this is a concern. Uh, I think it's one of the major criticisms that Pepeca, her rival, uh, makes uh, are the connections between Keiko Fujimori and organized crime, given in particular, of course, that she is the daughter of a president who's currently in jail uh, for both corruption and human rights uh, violations. The last time you were on the program, you alerted us to also the connections to people in her party, people who were promoting her, and the Panama Papers. And certainly we have now this new scandal that has appeared. Um, she is disconnected enough that there are no direct allegations against her, but is this troubling to you going forward? If she is going to be the next Fujimori in office, that, that there's going to be a climate of corruption in Peru? It's very much a concern for me, and I think uh, a large number of Peruvians. Uh, right here at Lhasa, uh, there uh, was a mobilization by the Peru section to express you know, our concerns precisely on these points. I think corruption and what we might loosely call authoritarianism, uh, the, the key indications are, as, as you indicated, the number of people around her uh, who have been under investigation uh, for corruption, and that, of course, now, as I mentioned, the Secretary General of the Party, Joaquin Ramirez, this is, of course, an important position, the head of her party. It was where uh, 
a great deal of party meetings were held. He was a major uh, financer you know, of, the, of the party. Uh, when we talked last time, it was a question of the Yoshiyama uh, family, which has been a major participant in the Fujimorista party since uh, her father. Uh, there are more uh, legislators from her party under investigation for one reason or another than any other party. Uh, Cecilia Chacon, who was uh, the number one on her party list, has been under investigation. Uh, and that isn't even to mention the people in her entourage who hail directly from uh, the Fujimori era, but who themselves have not been uh, under investigation. I don't want to make it sound like everybody else uh, in Peru has <laughs> no uh, problems, and sort of one of, uh, sadly, very sadly, I think uh, one of Keiko's main strategies in the face of these um, charges has been sort of everybody does it, and apparently that strategy has succeeded, but I think for many of us, including myself, uh, her the, the problems surrounding uh, Keiko and the people around her have been more serious. But again, the major concerns are corruption and also authoritarianism. Her style, especially in the last couple of weeks since she's been under a lot of criticism, has been what I think many of us considered very much like Donald Trump. Uh, so a good defense uh, is an offense. The best, the, best, uh, <laughs> the best defense is a good offense. And raising allegations that are just false. But no, the Peruvian voters, for the most part, can't really evaluate that. They're looking at the back and forth, and they don't really know know what uh, to believe. And but again, the style of what again very similar to Donald Trump, very confrontational, very insulting. Uh, it, it seems to have been succeeding for her, you as it has for Trump. You have been here at this conference talking about the relationship between the United States and Peru, that changing relationship, and how under President Umala and President Obama that there have been unexpected um, connections and a positive change in that relationship. Um, how is that relationship likely to be affected if either of these candidates come into office? I think it was important that there was a rapport between Umala and Obama. I don't want to suggest that this was <laughs> a friendship of the ages, but they did establish a rapport. I think that there was a sense of common values of you know, social justice, equality, opportunity, and that that was very helpful. And Peru had not you know, decades ago had not been particularly friendly much of the time with the United States. There had often been major conflicts in the last five years with Imala. There has been a lot of cooperation, both on uh, the market, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, of course, Peru is a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, on security, drugs. Again, it was a big surprise that the Imala government uh, was uh, as uh, interested in working with the United States as, as it was. Uh, it's very hard in a scenario in which we don't know the results of the proving election or uh, the U.S. election. Uh, if Hillary Clinton wins in the U.S., and if uh, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski were to pull this out, I would imagine that the relationship would continue you know, very much as it is between Peru and the United States. Uh, in the case of Donald Trump and Keiko, it's... <laughs> 
um, as I tried to ponder what uh, Keiko Fujimori could uh, do in this position, I, I don't think uh, rhetorically that she would change a great uh, deal. I mean, I think rhetorically the relationship would be very similar, but there's a lot of uncertainty because on the one hand, she's married to an American. She knows the United States very well. She studied here. She clearly likes the United States. But on the other hand, it was the Drug Enforcement Administration that uh, looked like it could bring down her entire campaign. So it's, there's a lot of uncertainty. Let's talk about more about that particular uh, potential. In that, you've talked about the authoritarian tendencies that you see in her, and obviously that has been a concern, not just in Peru, but all through Latin America, um, in other countries. But we've seen quite a change from her father's era and democratization in Peru. Um, are there particular areas where you think will step back, that have the potential to step back, or are already receding in democratization in Peru? Yes, you know, a very, very important question because I think the legitimacy of the presidents from 2001 to 2016 was also very helpful uh, for Peru. The country's established a very positive image. You know, tourism has skyrocketed. Uh, Peru's cuisine, you know, has, has flourished around the world, and Peruvians are very proud of their cuisine and Machu Picchu, and I think there's an impression around the world of you know, Peru is a good team player, it's on the right track, it's a success story. So I think there's a concern that if there's a scandal, as approval ratings decline, which they usually do in Peru for the president, that there could be serious challenges to the legitimacy of the president. Thank you so much, Cynthia McClintock of George Washington University, the author of The United States and Peru, Cooperation at a Cost, joining us on Latin Pulse here in New York City at the Latin American Studies Association Conference. Thank you so much for being our guest. Uh, again, my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. Thank you. Coming up, more concerns about the presidential race in Peru. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, we feature another interview recorded remotely at the Latin American Studies Association Conference in New York City. This time, we sought out the analysis of Joe Marie Burt of George Mason University in Virginia. She's the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru, and she's a senior fellow with the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. Here are excerpts from our on-location interview. As you and, and your listeners probably know, uh, the race is between Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of former President Alberto Fujimori, under whose government uh, Peru fell into a giant black hole of corruption and human rights abuses. And she's leading the polls, and there's a very good possibility that she may in fact win. Uh, her rival is Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, uh, 
He's 77. He's uh, a World Bank technocrat connected to transnational companies, not someone who's in a strong position to present himself as an alternative to Fujimori. In fact, economically, they're very similar. So I think in this second round uh, vote, it's, it's quite possible that Keiko could walk away uh, with the election. And so there, there is a lot of concern that this will be a return to, maybe perhaps not an exact replica of the Fujimorismo that we saw in the 90s, but there's sufficient evidence to suggest that a lot of what we saw will, will come back. And as, I, as we said earlier, you know, maybe come back with a vengeance. And I think there's a real concern about what democracy is going to look like in Peru after this and, and, and what the status of human rights is going to be under a Keiko Fujimori government should that come to pass. Well, let's talk about that. What are the signals to you that we might be looking at a return to the 90s in Peru? And what do you think that that might look like in some specifics? Well, n number one, um, Keiko Fujimori has never really made a clear break from the past. She's tried to, what we say in Spanish, maquillarse, you know, put on a a, a face that suggests that she's not the same as her father, that she's she's condemned, you know, she won't condemn crime, she condemns errors under his government. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a manipulation of the language to make it seem like she's distinguishing herself from his regime. But there are also times she has consistently said that her father's government was the best government that Peru has ever seen. Um, she has never accepted his convictions, not just for human rights abuses, but also for corruption and abuse of authority. Uh, she places all the blame of that on Montesinos, Fujimori's right-hand security advisor. Um, head of all the security services Head of in all Peru. the security services, the man behind all the corruption. Um, he's in jail and, and has, been, has been convicted on numerous counts of corruption and human rights abuses. Um, number two, she's surrounded by a number of her father's closest associates. And I'm not going to go you know, through the whole list, but there's a number of them. There was a, um, several months ago, she, uh, let's just say dismissed some of Fujimori's closest associates, her father's closest associates in Congress, and said they would not ru run for re-election in Congress. And this was presented in the press as a further demonstration that she was distancing herself from her father and was really offering something different. Well, those people are still very close to Keiko Fujimori and there's nothing to prevent them from becoming cabinet members or from holding, holding other powerful positions in her administration. And we still see many of, um, again, like I, as I said earlier, of her father's closest associates still very intimately involved in, in her campaign. We've talked on this program before about revelations in the Panama Papers about her close associates, some of those folks that you referenced who are in the Panama Papers, who have shell companies. Um, whether they're using them legally or not, that's of some question. And also there have been the videos and pictures that have surfaced clearly of Keiko Fujimori giving out envelopes, paying crowds of people, uh, looking like she's paying them for her vote. And, and yet Peruvian authorities said that that was uh, maybe right. a mistake, but she was allowed to continue to still be on the ballot. When they forced another candidate off the ballot for exactly the same reason, 
so there's a double standard, which is, I, I wouldn't have a problem necessarily because that's a new law and there's some questions about whether this relatively new law should be applied. But if it's applied for one candidate and not against another candidate, then that raises questions of fairness and impartiality of the electoral authority. So that's the problem there. And there was also the more recent revelations you probably saw of um, a congressman uh, of Keiko's Fuerza Popular Party um, and her, the head of her campaign, her, 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 until recently the head of her campaign, um, Joaquin Ramirez, uh, who is being investigated by none other than the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency for his involvement, his alleged involvement in money laundering for drug trafficking. Um, and her immediate reaction was not, oh, this is a problem, I'm going to investigate it, or I'm going to separate him. Her immediate reaction was to accuse the journalist and the person who was pointing fingers at this person of lying and radically defending Ramirez. And then she had to backpedal um, uh, like two or three days later, and he was separated from her campaign because it became, the, the, the evidence was quite clear that he is, in fact, being investigated. Keiko herself is not currently under DEA investigation, but the head of her campaign was. And given what we know about the ties between drug trafficking and her father's administration, this is, you know, huge red flags are going off here. Um, my concern is that in Peru there's just so much complacency about corruption, and corruption is endemic in Peru. We know this. It has been for many, many, many years. Oh, and the, there's uh, the book by Alfonso Quiroz, a Peruvian historian, which looks at corruption historically in Peru. And he says without a you know question that the Fujimori government was the most corrupt government that Peru has ever seen. So these things raise huge concerns. So the concern is the concern about you know the status of democracy and human rights, the concern about corruption um, and abuse of authority and perhaps leading Peru down the path to becoming, once again, a full-blown narco-state. And so you use the term complacent and complacency as, as, as a sort of mood of, of what you see in Peru or what some people are concerned about, that that, that complacent mood is, is bringing this back. Certainly when we talk about polls in Latin America, they're not always very trustworthy right before elections, but if we are to trust these polls, that Keiko Fujimori is up by two points or three points or five points, why is it that, that the electorate seems to have placed their bet back on her? I, I want to separate a couple things. I think, first of all, it is really important to remember that the first round and the way the election authorities, their decisions reshape the campaign, do have a lot to do with the outcome. So when they excluded Acuna and they excluded Julio Guzman, who together represented probably 25 to 30 percent of the vote, it reshaped the landscape of the elections. And it, I think it gave, it certainly gave an advantage to the left-wing candidate, the, uh, Veronica Mendoza, who went from 7 percent in the polls and ended up getting around 18 percent of the vote in the, in the first round election. But it also, I think, favored Keiko. Given that, I do think there has long been a complacency kind of fomented by the Fujimori regime and by other corrupt leaders. And there's a, there's a saying in Peru that's very widespread, and it's, roba pero hace obra. They steal, but at least they engage in public works. And, you know, I think that 
motto, that mindset has really contributed to a complacency about corruption in Peru that's very concerning. Um, but I also think there's been an attempt to erase the past, a very deliberate attempt to erase from the memory of the Peruvian public what we know about what happened under that decade of ignominy under Fujimori. Death squads, dis forced disappearances, massive corruption, deals with drug traffickers, the military was thoroughly corrupted under this government, um, massive human rights abuses, um, attempts to muzzle the press. The press was basically bought off by Fujimori. I don't know if you remember, there are scenes from these videos that the Montesinos videotape from his office. We have the heads of the major television stations just rotating in and out of his office, being paid, you know, I don't know how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to basically turn over their editorial line to the regime. So this is what I think is being, has, there's an attempt to erase this from the mind of your average Peruvian, right? To reclaim, what, one thing that the Fujimori trials did was to demonstrate for the public the nature of the repression under Fujimori, the systematic nature of state violence. But in this next round, what we see is no real ideological choice. Two candidates really of the right. Two candidates of the right, that's right. That's correct. And, and, and Kuczynski is not exactly the best candidate, as I said earlier, he's not exactly the best candidate to sort of portray himself as an alternative to Keiko, not only because of that, but if, if you'll remember in 2011, when Keiko was the second candidate, or the, one of the two candidates in the second round against Ollanto Malo, who eventually won, uh, Kuczynski sided with Keiko. There are videos of him on stage with her. So he's not someone who has had a principled stance against Fujimorismo. What haven't we talked about? What else should we consider when we think about these coming elections? I think one of the reasons that Keiko has been able to capture um, this significant percentage of popular support is the persistent problems of Poverty, but more than poverty, inequality and exclusion in Peru. Um, people talk about the, bonanza, the economic bonanza that Peru has experienced over the last 10 or so years. Um, and how can, you know, how can we understand what's happening? Peru's been doing so well economically. Well, you know, the fact is, trickle down does not work. It's a, that is a farce, right? Um, Peru certainly is, a, in terms of macroeconomy, has done very well, but average Peruvians do not see the benefit. There continues to be massive inequality and massive exclusion. And I think that's what fuels support for candidates like Keiko, who promise um, to do something about that, whether or not she will actually deliver on that. I have my severe doubts. Um, it's what fed support for Ollanta Mala in 2011. Um, but something that Keiko's doing that Kuczynski and, and other candidates have not done is over, and it's not just in the campaign, but over the last several years, is systematically visiting remote 
rural and urban communities and handing out presents, things, whether it's a calendar, a coffee mug, a sack of beans. And for people who are very poor, very desperate, that it's not just the physical object, it's the gesto, it's the gesture. And that's what Fujimori, her father, Alberto Fujimori, was so good at. Thank you so much, Joe Marie Burt of George Mason University in the Washington Office on Latin America, Wola, the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence, and the Authoritarian State in Peru, our guest today on Latin Pulse, coming to you remotely from New York City and the Latin American Studies Association Conference. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Joe Marie Burt later this summer. Thanks for joining us this week for Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant Chorsey Martin and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Mm-hmm.